Welcome to the Forbidden Forest. This is Ro reading chapter 19 of Death and Other Origin Stories, Alhaz. The end of exams always brought a heaving sense of relief, accompanied by sun-filled, slow summer days and the grounds bursting with fresh grass and the rustling of westerly winds through the trees. The four of them couldn't help but find their way down to the banks of the lake, the heat of the afternoon beckoning the giant squid to just below the surface, shimmering gently like a teeming school of fish, whole and at home. Of course, she asked for a cat, Sirius grumbled, one arm flung across his eyes as he lay back, sleeves and pant legs rolled up, his outer robes cast off. Transfiguration had just finished, and Minerva McGonagall had not held back. At least yours managed not to attack you. Peter was still nursing a deep scratch on one arm. The tabbies always come out so mean. I should have tried for a calico. Sirius absent-mindedly flicked his yew wand and sent a healing spell Peter's way, eyes still covered. Remus laughed softly. I'm sure you did fine, Pete. He sat perched on a protruding rock, hugging his knees against his chest. Easy for you to say, mate. I saw your cat. Absolute legend. It was purring and winding its way around McGee's ankles when I walked in, hissed something awful at the Siamese eye transfigured. James balled up his and Sirius's robes together and put them behind his head. It was quiet and peaceful in the sun by the lake, griping about exams. They spent a round hour whinging about slughorns, asking them to brew both a confusion concoction and a fresh vat of doxicide. Sirius and James had always found potions to be relatively straightforward, but Peter's doxicide had curdled, and Remus had added far too much lacewing to the confusion concoction, turning it deep blue in place of pale yellow. Nothing to be done about it now, Remus shrugged, shredding bits of grass between his fingers. The four of them lapsed into a steady, enjoyable silence, only broken when James sat up to watch Lily, Dorcas, and Mary MacDonald wander down the sloping lawns to sit just a little ways away in the shade of a large beach. It was just after watching them that James stood, hands on his hips, and Sirius groaned deeply. Here we go, gents, Sirius sniggered. We're about to get the next year when I'm Quidditch captain speech. Just watch. James looked offended for a brief second before a characteristic sternness that accompanied many a pre-match speech returned. Now, Sirius, I wasn't going to say anything, but since you've brought it up, I do think it's about time we got serious about the game. Sirius openly laughed into the crook of his arm. <laughs> Go on then, James. I'm serious. We won the cup only by the skin of our teeth this year. We could be better. We could be great. The final against Slytherin was too close. We chasers really had to carry the team. James was pacing back and forth now, voice round and projecting a bit more than was really necessary. Gideon would have words for you, Potter, Sirius said, still smiling, entirely enjoying the scene. The way James seemed to think Quidditch and the reputation he gained from being a chaser on a winning team could carry him into just about anyone's good graces. When I'm captain, I'll organize practice every day, 
on and off the pitch. We need hand skills, Black. We need communication. We need team building. I'll have us in top shape mentally, physically. We'll be unstoppable. Sirius groaned loudly and with vigor. Peter was nodding along, and Remus had stopped shredding his blades of grass, small huffing laughs seeming to punctuate James's proclamations. And she still won't go out with you, mate. Sirius leaned up on his elbows, nodding in the direction of Lily's red hair in the shade of the beech tree. It has nothing to do with her, James positively hissed, throwing the ball of robes at Sirius, who batted them away with ease. We ought to get packing, Remus broke the tension, getting up from his rock and leaning down to offer Peter a hand, pulling him up to his feet. Train leaves tomorrow. Such a buzzkill, Lupin. Sirius stood and stretched, yawning loudly, trying to hide the discomfort he felt with the impending summer, with the hours ticking by, marking time, keeping fastidious note of how long he had, how much freedom remained. Not enough, of course. They wound their way back down toward the entrance hall, running late because James was convinced he had forgotten an important part of their map, disarticulated in pieces as it was, behind the dresser where he'd hidden it days prior. As they all ran back toward the entrance hall, one after another, they each jumped the false step in the stairs, but before they could reach the landing, the whole staircase lurched under them. They moaned their grievances as it swung around to deposit them in the west wing of the second floor, near the charms corridor. Why does it always move when we have somewhere to be, Peter griped as they began to march down the corridor towards the secret sewn steps they knew at least wouldn't move on them. James stuck his arm out to halt Peter's litany of curses about being made to walk further than he needed to and furrowed his brow. Do you hear that? he asked, and the rest of them stopped to listen. Sure enough, the faintest of crying could be heard echoing down the hall from the west corridor, the one that often smelled of mold and had paintings that seemed universally quiet and grim. What is that? Remus asked, sounding concerned, his stance stiffening. Come on, James urged, turning sharply towards the sound. Sirius and Peter, quick to follow, led Remus, who trailed slowly behind, whinging about the time and the train and the likelihood that this, of all things, would certainly make them late. As they moved further down the corridor, it became more and more clear that these distressing sounds seemed to seep from behind an old ebony door, one with tarnished gold finishings set into a stone archway. The stone was old and smooth with the passage of time, but carved serpents hidden amongst climbing vines and flowering foliage could still be seen, winding their way around leaves and branches. Immediately, James put his hand to the dark wood to open the door, ignoring Remus's muttered reproach of, It's the girl's bathroom, James. We shouldn't be here. But, as usual, no one heeded the warning of their most cautious friend, and the three of them were already pushing their way inside and beneath the stone archway, Sirius calling a soft, Hello, anyone in here? And James following with a gentle, We heard crying, are you okay? Instead of a response, Sirius could just make out Remus sighing heavily, slipping in behind Peter before the heavy door could swing shut behind them. 
The large room was decorated with more stone archways and carved walls. The floor and ceiling were covered in scenes of forest boughs and gnarled branches radiating from old light fixtures, none of which seemed to be working. It felt old and stoic, cosseted, like so many of the deepest, oldest parts of the forest, untouched and untroubled by the forward march of time. Sirius, with James close behind, his hand on his shoulder, crept toward the stall on the end, where the loud and angry sobs seemed to be emanating. James uttered another cautious, Hello, who's there? But it seemed to disappear in the renewed echoing of an episode of hair-raising wailing. Sirius, hands splayed on the ornate wood of the last stall door, pushed gently, swinging it inward. He and James stepped quickly aside in one fluid motion, leaving Peter, who had just been standing behind them, directly in view of the stall occupant, who screamed in inconsolable rage and rushed forward, her incandescent gray form diving straight through him, ricocheting off the far wall and bursting several taps at once, water spraying in a relentless fountain across the room. Remus, who had hung back while the other three advanced towards the bank of stalls, instantly ducked behind a large pillar, the form of a majestic oak at the far end of the room. While Sirius and James clutched at each other and Peter fell backwards, landing in a sodden and blubbering heap just below the line of gushing sinks, his face an ashen white, hands trembling. How dare you interrupt my morning cry, the spectral figure shrieked, having returned to hover in the midst of the room, her voice high-pitched and grating, nasal and piercing all at once. We didn't mean to, James countered. We just wanted to make sure you were okay. Okay, she screamed, incredulous and positively unhinged by the audacity of such a suggestion. I'm dead, the revenant catapulted the words from the wispy memories of a throat and lungs, pickled in all the bitterness a departed soul might muster. The proclamation hung in the air for a moment, echoing oddly around arched recesses and the hard stone surfaces of the room. Peter sniffled hard beneath the cascading water that ran headlong over rims of porcelain basins. James swallowed several times, loudly and uncharacteristically. In the aftermath of this, the truest and most harrowing of statements, the duppy seemed to huff, perhaps in the great cruelty that one must be aware of one's own mortality, then dove headfirst into an adjacent stall's toilet, soaking James and Sirius both from head to toe in water she'd splashed from the bowl. Sirius and James looked at each other, drenched in what couldn't be the most benign of things, thoroughly rebuked and properly lashed. Peter was cowering under the sink in the corner, tap flowing and spilling out around him to soak the rest of his robes, also sobbing. We're sorry to have interrupted, Sirius called to the recently occupied toilet. The specter re-emerged suddenly, causing Peter to flinch and Remus to duck back behind the pillar and floated in front of Sirius and James. She was a young girl, perhaps only just older than they were, with large glasses and a round face, scarred with acne and framed in stringy hair. She was a ghost, just one they'd never seen before. This is a girl's toilet, she sniffed, looking them over. You're not allowed. 
My many apologies. Seems we got ourselves a bit lost is all, Sirius said smoothly, trying to put on his best accommodating air. James nodded along beside him. Peter was still snuffling under the sink, but the water was stemmed to just an errant drip, though the floor of the stalls were now covered in several inches of standing water. Sirius cleared his throat. Excuse me, where are my manners? My name is Sirius Black, and this is James Potter. And the one crouched under the sink there is our mate, Peter Pettigrew. He looked around and spotted Remus peeking out from behind the pillar, his eyebrow raised and face looking like they ought to be making a quick exit, not more introductions. Ah, yes, and that one back there, keeping dry and out of the commotion, is Remus Lupin. Sirius looked around at them all encouragingly. Well, say hello, gents, don't leave the lady waiting. They all nodded and waved stiffly, except Peter, who was still hyperventilating a bit. The ghost giggled, which was decidedly uncomfortable and awkward, and it almost seemed as though she was blushing, tears entirely forgotten. James took the time to give Peter a hand and drag him up from under the sinks, which really hadn't stopped overflowing, and even Remus was standing in an inch or so of water by now, still relatively safe behind his pillar. There, there, Pete, James said, hand on his very wet shoulder. Hello, then, the ghost said, hovering above the toilet. I'm Myrtle. Her voice strained at her name, and she scrunched up her opaque eyes again, tears threatening. The four of them shrank back instinctively. Miserable Myrtle, she continued, sobs starting anew. Miserable, moaning, moping Myrtle. She began crying again at this point, still making a rather impressive effort to speak in between the sobs, and her voice growing louder on each word. That's what they used to call me, right here in this miserable school, in this horrible hall, and then, and then I would come here and cry and cry and cry all the afternoons before Madame Pomfrey would come and fetch me for a calming draft. She started really wailing now. And that miserable Olive Hornby never gave me a moment's peace, and here you are pretending to be nice to me so you can tell cruel jokes and laugh behind my back later. She swooped down and threw Peter, again, who blanched and choked unpleasantly, falling back into the still-accumulating standing water, splashing his heavy robes about in a panic while James attempted to grab him to help him back to his feet. Sirius, who was also prudently stepping back, caught Remus's eye. Remus was making specific and purposeful movements toward the ebony door, which swung open at that very moment, sending a renewed wave of water back rippling against the wall. Myrtle was screaming incoherently about being teased by someone named Olive and how she'd never leave any Hogwarts student any moment of peace ever again, creating gigantic splashes of water from the toilets and the sinks and even managing to shatter a mirror in all the hubbub. In the doorway, above the din, they heard a familiar, sharp Scottish accent. What in the name of Godric Myrtle, for heaven's sake! Remus dived toward the open door, slipping out into the hall, Sirius and James dragging a sobbing Peter right behind him, right under the outstretched arm of an irate Professor McGonagall. Incoherent yelling between Minerva and Myrtle followed them as the door swung shut, and the four of them pelted back down the hall and toward the hidden passage behind the four armored knights that led to the cloakroom off the front entrance. They paused to catch their breath in the hidden stairwell, 
Sirius and James using their wands to blow jets of hot air in attempts to dry off, their robes still dripping and creating slick pools of toilet water about their sodden feet. What a great addition to the castle, Sirius said, trying to hold back laughter. Really charming. Seems like you really thought you were going to win her over there, Black, James said, also chuckling. Seems like we finally met someone resistant to your charms. Oh, I don't know, Black countered, grinning. I'm never one to turn back from a challenge. Remus snorted, using his own wand now to dry his socks and shoes. Who the blazes is Olive Hornby? Who would let a ghost like that come back to the castle, Peter stammered, James now using his wand to blow dry his hair, which was standing on end and fully floofed out in the hot air. Does anyone actually get to decide where a ghost goes or what they do, Remus asked, straightening up. I thought they generally haunted where they died. That's what my dad said anyway, James said, finally leaving Peter in peace. Who is such an unfortunate, cursed soul they die in a toilet? and then has to stay there for eternity, asked Sirius, throwing his cloak back over his shoulder and using his wand to light the way, continuing on down the dark and spiraling set of stairs. They were silent for a while, contemplating the newest of Hogwarts ghosts, or maybe a bit on the concept of eternity, and before long they found themselves piled behind Sirius, peeking out from the cloakroom in the Great Hall, ensuring the coast was clear. The coast was beyond clear, really. The hall was empty, with no piles of trunks or students or teachers, not even Filch or that wretched cat of his anywhere in sight. The four of them spilled out into the hall, looking around. Oh no, groaned Remus, jogging toward the heavy doors that marked the main entrance to the castle. What time does the train leave again? He pulled them open, just catching the smallest sight of the last carriage disappearing beneath the trees that surrounded the long drive down the castle grounds towards Hogsmeade and the train station. Better hurry, mates, Sirius added, laughing as he broke into a run, booted feet hitting hard on the rocky gravel that wound down along the steep hillside. James pulled ahead of him, eventually, even looking back to stick out his tongue, laughing. Remus loped along awkwardly, obviously not wanting to miss the train, but long and gangly and unaccustomed to a run, let alone a sprint. Peter kept up quite well with Remus this time, face growing redder and redder by the minute. By the time they found themselves skidding to a halt on the platform alongside the Hogwarts Express, the train was steaming and whistling, slowly rumbling forward and inching along, eager to depart the station. The four of them hurled themselves through a still-open carriage, landing in a heap, with James just managing to slam the sliding door shut as the train began to pick up speed, rumbling steadily forward. They lay, panting and wheezing and clutching various parts of themselves for a few long minutes, none of them speaking. Sirius spread out with his back on the cold floor that vibrated steadily with the churning motion of the train on the tracks. Remus on his left, face down and groaning intermittently. James was on his right, breathing hard but smiling. Peter was at his feet, eyes closed, looking as though he never planned to move ever again. He took a few moments apart from the victory of making their train, of succeeding, of winning the race against time, to mourn the possibility of having missed the train entirely, 
a future where he stayed the whole summer at Hogwarts, exploring dark passages and musty corridors and uncovering ghosts and secrets and so many hidden things. A summer where he didn't have to watch his father and his mother and so many others dance in pretty circles around each other, singing odes to cruelty. A summer where he didn't imagine the ways they steeped the world in suffering, in misery, and the ways they watched and reveled in it, made gold with it, bought and paid for it. A summer where he didn't watch his father swallow down bitters and wine and throatfuls of stiff drink and look blank and bored, awaiting his yearly opportunity for vice and malice and brutality. He thought about the ways his father had let those parts of himself spill over in the years before, when he was young and wistful and tried so hard to please him. The way he'd beaten Sirius hurt him, given the lack of easier, better sedated prey. He thought about the way he let his mother hate him, the way he let her hiss such vicious things in his ear, the way they let him believe he was a poison, a hateful, imperfect thing, foul and wretched and human, too human, too flawed and real and ugly to be pure like them. The way they let him hang on small words, small moments of praise when he performed, when he was cruel and foul and hateful in the ways they wanted him to be. The way their love for him was so bound in conditions, in caveats, in bigotry and dogma that it couldn't really be love, could it? Love was impartial. Love was forgiving and gracious and irreparably full of humanness, of humanity. Love was the way he felt about Remus and James and Peter and Regulus. Regulus, soft and kind and tottering along, a boy who used to ask Sirius to tie his shoelaces for him and who'd swap his carrots for Sirius's broccoli and who'd pick Queen Anne's lace and marigolds for Creature in the garden in June and gardenias in July. Regulus, who'd be the kind of easy prey Sirius had always been if he did leave, if he did not return home and did not serve as an outlet for their cruelest needs. Regulus, who was small and slight. Regulus, who hadn't yet learned the charms he'd need to heal his own wounds, to hide bruises. Regulus, whose magic had first appeared as levitation charms and little acts of transfiguration. Regulus, who couldn't yet cast a Protego charm because he'd never had to. Sirius sat up, thoughts too full and too heavy. Come along, gents, he said, clearing his throat and getting to his feet, pulling off his outer robes to reveal James's favorite sleep shirt underneath. It was a baggy, pale yellow thing with a horridly cartoonish line of trees below faded black lettering, something about the little alchemist summer camp, 1968. It suited Sirius and his new love for muggle comfort wear terribly. Let's find a compartment. The train ride back was uneventful. They played exploding snap and ate chocolate frogs, chatting amicably about the summer ahead. James ruminated on Quidditch for a whole hour before Remus pulled out that morning's daily profit, and the four of them sat with their heads together to read an article on the disappearance of Sohail Shafiq. It was at that point that Sirius got restless and both hot and cold and decided it was time for a walk up and down the long corridor of the train that ran between compartments. He spotted Regulus sitting with Barty Crouch, Noah Shafiq, and Evan Rosier near the front, 
the four of them laughing and practicing Wingardium Leviosa on about a thousand different feathers scattered about the compartment. It looked as though they'd ripped apart a feather-down pillow, or perhaps a whole duvet. He tapped at the door and waved through the glass, and Regulus had broken concentration to wave back, about half of the floating feathers falling back toward the floor. Barty looking stone-faced back at him and Noah rolling his eyes, clearly demanding Regulus pay attention. He saw Lily, Marlene, Dorcas, Mary, and Alice all together with two Hufflepuffs from their year, Xavier Smith and Dirk Cresswell. Xavier was clearly in the midst of some self-aggrandizing and likely heavily embellished storytelling, and the Gryffindor girls all had bored, blank expressions. Dorcas seemed to have fallen asleep against Mary's shoulder, and Lily's arms were folded tight across her chest. Sirius had half a moment to consider rescuing them, but he thought better of it. Lily was well incapable of rescuing herself. Eventually, he found his way back to their own compartment, and James, in a moment of pure brilliance and incredible planning and foresight, produced four butterbeers from deep in his trunk, which they all happily drank together, James and Sirius occasionally raising the glass bottles to cheers to some of their greatest moments of the year. They cheers to spelling Severus's nose green, and the week they made a real effort to count the number of horrible accidents and odd incidents that seemed to plague poor Davy Gudgeon. Remus nearly wet himself laughing at that particular recollection, since that week was also the same one the castle decided to smooth every single staircase Davy tried to climb when he was one or two steps from the top, creating a great and terrible slide he'd unceremoniously be flung right back down. By the end of the week, no one would walk with him anywhere, and it was all a great relief that the Hufflepuff common room wasn't up in a tower. "'To Osler's fire,' said Remus wistfully, raising his own bottle. "'And may we return again, some day.' "'Cheers,' they all said in unison. "'What do you think that thing guarding the fire was?' said Sirius, his butterbeer bottle still resting against his lip, lost in thought. "'A water demon.' Peter shuddered hard, slopping some of his drink across his hand, which he then quickly slurped back up. Do vampires shriek like that? James pondered, his feet up on the bench across from him, between Remus and Peter. It would explain why it smelled like blood. Oh, stop, please, Peter whined. I'd forgotten about that. Late in the afternoon, the train pulled unceremoniously into platform nine and three quarters, and the four friends went their separate ways for the third summer in a row. Hasty goodbyes and reassurances that both the map and their friendship was safe. But then the platform had emptied, and Sirius sat, Regulus at his side, slowly buttoning his robes back up to his throat, waiting listening to the youngest of his name, full to the very brim with excitement, recount the wonders of magic and the fast friends he'd made in his first year in the House of Snakes. One week had passed before Sirius found himself treading, light-footed, up the wide wooden stairs, his shaking hand resting gently against Regulus's door, slowly easing it open. It creaked, as all things within Grimald Place had a great tendency to do, but the hinges swung quickly, Sirius stepping into the relative quiet, dark, and calm. 
Piano music drifted from a wireless in the corner, and Regulus was perched precariously atop his dresser, balancing with his hands outstretched, pinning up a green Slytherin house banner, his magic not yet refined enough to tack it up by anything but hand. Regulus, brother, come down from there. We've got to go. Sirius rushed forward and reached up to help lift him down, beckoning with his fingers outstretched and voiced quieter than a whisper. Pack your things. Where's your trunk? What are you talking about, Sirius? Regulus asked. Regulus asked, pressing the pin holding the banner to the wall deeper into the forest wallpaper, not bothering to whisper himself. What do you mean we need to go? Regulus, Sirius huffed impatiently, giving up trying to help him down to look for the trunk himself, picking up odds and ends, magical books and robes scattered about. We can't stay here. Our family, they're involved. Things are... He paused between thoughts, discarding a Slytherin tie on principle and reaching for the standard book of spells instead. Regulus was pouting evenly, still standing atop his dresser and looking at Sirius, waiting, expecting an explanation. Sirius dumped the pile of things on his little brother's green bedspread, the four posters of the frame carved with snakes and black family insignia. He raised one hand to his forehead, rubbing the space between his eyes, which was sore and distracting. There's evil things brewing, Regulus. There's evil people out there, and they're taking a hold of things. Our family's getting drawn in, and people are planning very evil deeds, murder even. Sirius didn't know how to explain, not with his hands growing hot and nausea pooling in his gut. All he knew is it was time. He had to leave. It wasn't safe, not for him, not for Regulus. You mean the Dark Lord, Regulus said matter-of-factly, dropping down to sit on top of his dresser, his feet in little patent leather loafers now, dangling down by the third drawer. Yes, Sirius said, staring at him, arrested by the use of this moniker, this name. How do you know about Voldemort? Everyone in Slytherin knows, Sirius, Regulus said, rolling his eyes and kicking his feet a bit so that his heels bounced off the polished wood of the dresser. My friend Evan, Evan Rosier, his dad sent him a letter a few weeks ago telling him all about the new order that's coming, how wizards are going to be safe once more, kept secret from muggles. Sirius stared at Regulus, open-mouthed. Regulus, it's not about keeping wizards safe. Voldemort murders people. He's, evil. He's planning unspeakable things. He wasn't whispering anymore, but somehow this new turn of the conversation felt so much more dangerous so much more sinister than what he had come running from in the parlor downstairs. But it's in the name of the greater good, Sirius. The wizarding world needs protecting from muggles. Wizarding culture, our customs, our schools and traditions, all of them need protecting and preserving. Regulus spoke with the tone and expression of someone explaining very simple concepts to a very small child, and Sirius felt the earth shifting irreparably between his feet. Regulus, he's killing people, innocent people. How can you even... Why would you think it's wizards who need protection from muggles? Regulus hopped down from his dresser and moved back to the pile of things Sirius had deposited across his green bedspread, gathering his books to replace them on the shelf. Of course we do. Muggles are a threat to our whole way of life. Look how they burned those they thought were witches. They hate us, Sirius. Everyone knows this. Don't be daft. You're wrong, Regulus. 
Sirius felt like crying. His eyes burned and his throat hurt, and he couldn't quite articulate why or how Regulus's betrayal stung him so deeply and completely. You're wrong, and I don't know how to argue with you when you can't see that death, that murder, is never permissible. Oh, you wouldn't kill someone who threatened your family. What if they were about to kill me or mother? You don't have to act so pious, brother. Regulus was smirking to himself now, refolding his robes, packing them away. You don't know what you're talking about, Regulus, Sirius bit out, anger now surging to the surface. What had happened to this kind, soft, loving brother who worried so much about badgers, who didn't have dens to retreat to in the summer rains or winter snows? What had they done to him? How had he changed so much so quickly just behind Sirius's turned back? What was it that you and father and uncle Rodolphus and Rebastin were discussing just now in the parlor, Sirius? Regulus asked, obviously more intrigued by this than the looming threat of violence. I cannot wait until next year. Father said once I'm a man and I'll be welcome to join after dinner for drinks and I'll be able to sit and hear what moves our family makes. I'll be one of you. His eyes were bright and crinkled up by smiling cheeks. It made Sirius feel sick. He thought of Rodolphus and the way he'd killed Rhiannon, the way he'd split her flesh, discarded her, the pleasure he seemed to take in it. The room seemed to spin and churn, and the threat of his little brother being brought into this world. It brought ringing to his ears. The tide was too strong, the waters too deep. Sirius was drowning in seas he could not name, seas that swallowed men like him whole, without remorse. He thought of the quiet stillness of Professor Shafiq. He thought of the way the light played on the bangles about his wrists and the embroidery that hemmed his sleeves. He thought of how much he loved Gloria Fig and the way he had moved heaven and earth for her, only for her to meet a bitter, cruel end in the basement of Crouch Manor not two weeks ago, begging for her life, if Rebastin Lestrange was to be believed to be laughed at over port and brandy and sherry by those who would capitalize on her death and the vulnerability born from how much he had loved her and how magic had deserted her. It was untenable now because the tide was high and dangerous and one could only tread water for so long, the shore distant, disappearing from sight. It was time. The night air was warm and humid and smelled of all kinds of things, mostly related to cities and large numbers of people living together in close quarters. Sirius took deep, steadying breaths of it anyway, hurrying down the empty street, edged by dark and quiet brownstones, walk-ups and the late-night quiet of shop fronts closed for the evening. In the distance, there were noises of cars and traffic and even laughter from within spaces he'd not ever been invited to that seemed to pepper the dark. Rounding the corner, Sirius took a moment to step gingerly into a tiny alley, just shoved between a warmly decorated florist shop and what was likely a very nice, albeit rather snooty, cafe during the day. He stood there a moment, breathing the sweet and humid air, patting his trouser pocket where he'd stowed his shrunken trunk with all of his worldly possessions, then making sure his wand was still securely hidden in plain sight, affixing the top knot of his dark hair. It had been an easy decision once he'd made it, 
easy because as he'd fled from Regulus's room and climbed the next flight of stairs, there wasn't a single thing for which he could imagine staying. Drella and his mother could be heard cackling in one of the east sitting rooms, the green and silver one with that horrid tapestry of the whole family tree. Bellatrix and Narcissa would be there with them, undoubtedly learning and unfolding all of the generational knowledge that women passed between each other when they found themselves married off into the hands of appropriately bred men. Men, like the men of the parlor downstairs, the brothers Lestrange, Lucius, his father, ugly, conniving, brutal men who showed their teeth when they smiled. Men responsible for things that piled up in the corners of the room, yet who seemed perfectly at ease to deny those things even existed at all, as if the lamplight were being slowly turned lower and lower. But the truth was, Gloria Fig was dead. He knew it to be true because his father had called for Creature to send word to his solicitor. There was gold to be made and power at hand, and if his father knew one thing and one thing only, it was how to capitalize on the death of an enemy, and he wouldn't make such bold moves without certainty. Lucius said Shafiq would be next, blood traitor that he was, if only they could find him, and Sirius sent silent prayers to the old gods, covertly drawing runes against his skin of his palm, hands clasped together in his lap. And then, without warning, his path became clear. It was no longer time to draw runes and pray. It was time to join Sahel Shafiq in the warm summer night, awake and free and unburdened by the weight of his convictions, to draw the runes deep into himself and the earth around him, to not be so feeble and fumbling and afraid in his allegiances. Sirius, standing in the dark and rather putrid-smelling alley, ran his fingers along the buttons of his silken robes, fitted tight and precise against his skin. He slipped a finger beside one, pulling it from its fabric clasp, then another, and before long he'd unfastened the whole silken, beautifully made thing. He let it fall from his shoulders, his Snowdonia t-shirt bright white beneath it, his trousers and dress shoes and fancy dress socks with the lace on the folded-over cuff, now looking wholly ironic and unreasonable, which, for now, made them at least bearable. Picking up his outer robes from where they had fallen, Sirius felt his fingers wander into the sludge they'd fallen into, a strange and turbid mix of awful from the adjacent bin and years of settled grime that likely birthed and murdered generations of things in the swill between bricks that long ago might have been called red. It was putrid stuff, this muck, rancid smelling, too sweet for earth, and it was smeared across quite a lot of the robe and all down Sirius's first two fingers. Somewhere in the distance, a woman laughed high and tight, and a door slammed. Music played. Sirius stared down at the mess, something giddy and unreasonable growing within him. Without doing much thinking, he knelt down and dipped his fingers back into the primordial soup of the alley between the florist and the cafe. It was sandy and soft and wet, and something about it felt horribly disgusting in the most human and earthy of ways. He brought his hand back up and dragged his fingers along the side of the metal bin from which much of this silty slime had come, 
wiping them so that in their wake was left a long, dark line. He added two horns and spoke aloud. The elk sedge usually lives in the fen, growing in the water. It wounds severely, staining with the blood any man who makes a grab at it. He rose, wiping the rest of the muck on his light gray trousers. Elhaz was fitting. He'd hoped it'd carry him through the night, guide him even. He lifted the lid of the bin, about to throw on top of a week's worth of rubbish his decadent black evening robes, ones his mother had picked out and had kept him well-behaved for so long. What the hell is the matter with you? The voice was loud and uncomfortably close, and Sirius nearly slipped and fell into the puddle by the bin for how badly he jumped back. You can't be throwing away clothing that fine, you daft goat. The speaker was a boy, Sirius's age, he guessed, but mousy and freckled and thin as a rail, undernourished in a scrappy and hangdog kind of way. He had rags wrapped around his hands, and his shirt was mere tatters, with dark smudges of earth across one cheek and a rather pronounced notch taken out of one ear. I'm sorry, Sirius said rather blusteringly, completely wrong-footed. I thought you were looking for something to eat when you went to pick up that bin lid and I was going to let you be or even tell you that the best scraps are in the lane by the Indian place on the corner, but there you are throwing away clothing like it's your first night on the street. Well, it, Sirius tried hard to get a word in, but the boy was busy inspecting the bundle of fabric in his hands. Hand it over then if you don't want it. What is this, silk? The boy had taken the robes from Sirius's hands and thrown them about himself. He left the buttons hanging open in front and wore it a bit like a trench coat. It was lucky he was quite tall, and the black silk seemed to float just off the ground. Not bad, kid, not bad at all. Don't mind if I do, yeah? Could be a lord in this bit. You could, agreed Sirius, now nodding along and giving him a smile. Very proper. I'm Jack, the boy said, sticking a hand out towards Sirius rather forcefully. He whistled softly, and a tiny tan ball of fluff came tumbling around the corner, running to join the greeting, panting heavily. And this here is Cricket. Sirius, Sirius responded, shaking his heavily wrapped hand, and now absolutely gleeful in his grinning, watching Cricket sniff at his pant leg and wiggle incessantly between their feet. What kind of a name is that, Sirius? Like your parents never had a bit of joy in their lives, that is. Jack was now looking him up and down and taking in his fitted gray trousers and what had once been shiny dress shoes beneath them, his brow very furrowed. I'm named after a star, Sirius said, shrugging. Everyone in my family is. He was distracted by Cricket's obvious enjoyment at the butt scratches he was giving. Her fur was soft and curly, and little memories of Leonie seemed to run through him in odd, painful ways that were remedied at once as Cricket moved to lick his hands, still wagging her whole back end enthusiastically. Right, Jack said, still obviously pondering over this odd new introduction. Well, enough of that. I've got to keep moving if I'm going to get enough food together for the night for Cricket and me. You coming with, then? Can I? Sirius looked up, so wholly thankful that he'd somehow made a friend so quickly. Two, actually, since Cricket seemed also very fond of him. Do you have anywhere else to go? Jack raised an eyebrow. I do, I think, he paused, wondering what to do. He'd thought about going to the Potters in Godric's Hollow. 
It would have required calling the night bus or fluing even, but all of that felt too close, traceable. Doris McMillan was head of the Department of Transportation's flu office, and her nephew, Porter, son of Grayson McMillan, was head of the subcommittee in charge of magical buses and charters, which took daily records of the movements of magical peoples in order to best clarify transportation needs. The night bus was closely watched and monitored by exactly the kind of people who would love to have Orion Black owe them a favor. In this same vein, Peter's house was out too. It was much too far, up in the northeast somewhere, and his mother and her newest beau, another journalist, it sounded like, would love a fresh bit of gossip to spread about. Her crowd seemed all too ready to nourish themselves on a steady diet of the misfortune of others. It was odd now how much safer and more secure the muggle world seemed, how quiet and unassuming and untraceable it felt, how untouched by the many reaches of the powerful, of the sacred 28 and their colonels and lieutenants. Muggle means of transport were largely ignored by wizarding folk, and there was only a single office in one of the lowest levels of the ministry, really a closet in a disused hallway devoted to muggle relations. It had been one of those issues that Gloria Fig had found herself advocating for, at least another person or two in the muggle liaison office, a protection officer, something. Do you have any idea how one would get to Morton-on-Marsh from here? The seats were hard metal, and it smelled vaguely of a urinal. It couldn't have been more of a contrast to the plush interior of the Hogwarts Express, and yet... Sirius was enjoying it immensely, his legs stretched out across the bench, cricket in his lap. Every time he stopped petting her, she'd shove her nose against his hand and work all the harder to show her belly. The rhythmic sound of the train was familiar and soothing, and he was hard-pressed to find reasons to be at ill at ease. Jack was in the middle of explaining something immensely complicated that Sirius did not understand in the slightest, he seemed to have taken it upon himself to give Sirius a thorough education on all things he fancied as important ever since they'd first walked down into the underground station, and he'd taught him just how one might jump a turnstile. Fundamental knowledge, he'd called it, basic education. The carriage swayed a bit as they crossed a bridge, the dark river winding below them, the sounds of the train echoing a bit louder in the little valley it formed. In any case, the stuff they've been using to kill the rats around London is a hell of a blood thinner. Got an enemy you need gone? Feed them some of that, and they'll be bleeding out their gums and their eyes and their nose hellishly. We'll end up in a hospital for weeks with that one. No one will fuck with you when they think you're able to curse someone with that shit. Sirius nodded solemnly. He did know of blood thinning curses. Bellatrix had gone through a whole phase where she'd been especially prone to telling him all about them. Narcissa had said it was plebeian magic. He hadn't realized that muggles had access to the same. They rolled into the station, and the train stopped, even though there were no people in the carriage and not a soul on the dark platform. A sound chimed, and the doors pulled shut again. More on Marsh's next, mate, Jack said, shoveling some linguine they'd found in a bin by the station into his mouth, slurping a long noodle and spraying sauce over Sirius's old robes. You know how to find the place from there? 
He said it's just on the road down from the station, shrugged Sirius, thankful for having listened to that one story Remus had told in the early days of their third year, the one about how he'd been chased by the neighbor's mastiff every morning on his way to his summer job, an ice cream shop just next to the ticket station. Said his place was on Verona Drive, fifth house down a poplar-lined bit, yellow paint. He paused a moment, thinking, red mailbox. Sirius laughed a bit to himself. If it's anything like him, it'll be a bit run down, I bet. Need a new coat. Shouldn't be too hard to find. I'm not one to judge, said Jack, clearly pleased with his own coat and adventure and the evening's subsequent spoils. He'd told Sirius he came down to London every now and then to forage, shore up supplies, look for treasures. He'd said it was too dangerous for someone like him to stay in the city. Rough customers sleep there, he'd said. So he took the train back up to his hometown in the northwest, where he kept by a church that wasn't so keen to cast him out. It was pure luck his stop was on the same line as Morton on Marsh. The train slowed, and Sirius reluctantly handed Cricket back over to Jack, who ruffled her ears affectionately. Thanks for everything, mate, he said, reaching out to shake Jack's hand one last time. I hope we cross paths again. I was a blessing, Sirius. His grin was fond and his cheeks high and hollow as ever. May fortune favor you. And you, Sirius called over his shoulder, stepping out into the quiet village of Morton-on-Marsh. The train doors closed at his back and it pulled away and out of the station. He heard Cricket's loud bark, but then it had moved off and the night fell back over the quiet country village. The fluorescent lights over the station platformed, hummed and buzzed in a way that could only be so accentuated by the quiet. Moths and other insects swarmed in the pool of light they provided, driving themselves ceaselessly into the plastic fixtures, desperate to burn themselves alive on the heat of the globe. Sirius stepped down from the platform and headed across the tiny car park, which is just as empty and forlorn as one might imagine. He patted his pocket again, feeling the reassuring outline of his shrunken trunk. It wasn't scary, this. No, this night in all of its strange twists and turns felt oddly charming and benign, and like nothing could be more frightening than the thought that he might have stayed. Verona was just as fair as Remus had described. A short and shady row of houses amongst poplars that ran straight and uncomplicated toward the station. Even in the dark, Sirius had no trouble picking out the red mailbox in the distant half-moon light, and he scuffed his shoes on the pavement as he wandered up the lane. A dog barked in what was probably meant to be a menacing way from the yard of a two-story house with a low stone wall. But Sirius found it comforting to know that all around were homes with canine companions, and they probably were all just a bit high-strung, having found themselves neighbors with what turned out to be a werewolf, of all things. He greeted the great drooling thing, and it sunk back onto its haunches, apparently well-pleased and reassured that Sirius was far less dangerous than he seemed out and about in the witching hour. At the red mailbox, which, as Sirius had anticipated, was just a little bit skew and starting to rust around the hinges, Sirius found the yellow house with peeling paint and the white front porch with a swing that clearly hadn't been used in ages. The lawn was overgrown and overrun with daisies and long stringy grasses, and Sirius swung open an old wooden gate with a broken hinge 
picking his way toward the stoop that led to a small porch and a recessed white door, plain save for a brassy-covered slit about waist height. There were no lights on inside. There were not many moments in Sirius's young life that he'd wished he'd enrolled in muggle studies. However, the few that had occurred so far had left him with a long and lingering sense of unease with how little he seemed to know about muggle life and their day-to-day operations. This was one of those moments. How did one announce themselves at the home of a muggle? In wizarding tradition, you simply stepped up to the front door, declared your name, whether or not you had an appointment, and the reason for your visit. And then the house, or rather the house elf, brought this news to the master of the wizarding dwelling, who then made a decision about whether or not they'd like to open the door or refuse entry. It was a bit of an involved tradition, with many variations and some interesting unique traditions in various locales that sometimes accounted for quite a devastating faux pas, lest no one forget the great pineapple door knocker fiasco of 1712. Sirius cleared his throat, standing tall with his hands clasped behind his back, saying in a soft voice, cognizant of the early hour of the morning, Announcing Sirius Orion Black, here to see Remus John Lupin without an appointment and on urgent business relating to the recent change of address. A relative silence followed, during which the crickets seemed to get a bit louder and Sirius became more aware of another dog barking a few lanes over. He cleared his throat again and said, just a hair louder, Announcing Sirius Orion Black, here to see Remus John Lupin, without prior arrangement on an emergency basis, and with great apology for the intrusion onto his home. The house remained irresolute and seemingly disinterested. Announcing Sirius Orion Black, to see Remus John Lupin, urgently on matters of housing and safety, with apologies for the lateness of the hour and the lack of appointment. By this time, the crickets felt a bit mocking. Announcing a longtime friend of Remus John Lupin, Sirius Orion Black, who has traveled long and arduously deep into the night to discuss urgent business related to recent family events. Sirius surveyed the door, eyes narrowed, before stepping up and raising the tarnished brassy lip that served as a covering to a horizontal portal through the wood. Leaning down, he spoke into the gap. Announcing Sirius Orion Black, son of Orion Arcturus Black, here to see Remus John Lupin, son of... Sirius paused, trying his utmost to remember Remus's father's name, and coming up blank. Son of Hope Lupin, may she rest, here on urgent matters of recent family developments, and regrettably without an appointment. After waiting a moment, peering narrow-eyed into the dark foyer of the house, Sirius cursed and stood stamping one of his now scuffed and very dirty dress shoes. Well, there was nothing else for it. Perhaps the house was stubborn for all its shabbiness and required the kind of grand introduction that somewhere like a manor about a moor would demand. Sirius stepped back down off the porch and into the long grass of the overgrown yard, clearing his throat and bowing deeply. Announcing, he started in a clear and ringing voice that had a bit of a posh overtone one would associate with a carriage footman very invested in his work and that carried clear and heavy and absolutely unmissed throughout the dark and quiet of the tiny village. Serious Orion Black, and a light clicked on.
so James Moaning Myrtle train regulus, regulus. alley things Just doing alley things with my friends <laughs> then Jack and Cricket yeah and the train adorable and the train and then <laughs> and then Morton on Marsh yeah and the announcing. And the announcing to the Muggle House, which is like literally... you missed. You missed me reading it. I, I, I can't. I know. I'm so sad. I, I really need to put, go back and listen to it. I put. Effort. I think I could hear you from the other side of the what? house at one point because I was like, "Is that? Is it? Did you just hear me screaming? Yeah, serious Orion Black yeah. into the void. Yep. That's a whole ass mood. That's a whole <laughs> ass mood. <laughs> Serious Orion Black <laughs> here to see Remus John Lopin. What's wrong with this house? <laughs> I love that so much. Okay, so this is like one of the most fun chapters you've ever written. Do you think so? Yeah. Even though the regular thing like really gutted me, like that fucking killed me. It was. Awful. I think. I think I. It's a fun chapter, but it's like everything that happens is like super serious. So I like tried mm. to make it light and enjoyable but it's mm. also it's super serious but it's also really freeing yeah and um like obviously there's going to be a fallout and like it's sort of threatening what his family might do yeah. in response but at this point in time like he's made his decision mm. and that that's pretty cool he obviously is more lighthearted about it mm. than worried yeah totally it's yeah. like when he finally got to that threshold and made the choice. It was like, well, here we go. <laughs> yeah, and the thing that took him there was, I, well, no longer need to worry about protecting Regulus, because yep. Regulus is a fucking nightmare all of a sudden. Yeah. <laughs> what happened to my sweet little brother? Yeah. He's a monster. Yeah. I gotta fucking go. There's nothing I can do here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Which is, like, really sad, but, like, a good realization for him to come to, to realize that Regulus is his own person. Yeah, his own person on his own journey, and also, like, they don't, he doesn't he hasn't been there and mm. been talking to him and he hasn't mm-hmm. you know like yeah he yeah. hasn't he he put in an effort in a different way in like yeah. the way that he like absorbed all of his parents like nonsense yeah. anger and hatred mm. but that didn't equate to teaching his brother about you know like muggles aren't that bad yeah exactly being kind is fun yeah yeah Mm. and you know he got sorted into a house where he immediately was friends with people who were raised muggle and even remus was a huge moderating influence Mm. like on that sort of perspective and uh yeah he's best friends with a werewolf yeah you know who's supposedly this horribly dangerous dark thing yeah and then it's remus who like (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of like rickety at 14 like i need a nap like the poster child of autoimmune disorder. Yeah, exactly. Like a hundred percent. Yes, you have juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. You yes. do. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. you, buddy. Like, that's you, buddy. In your grandma's cable knit sweater, yes. you've got arthritis. Yes. yes, and he needs someone to get him some goddamn hot chocolate. Yeah, no one is threatened by this. Yeah, no this one kid. is threatened. Not even the neighborhood dogs. <laughs> He's threatened by them. Yeah. No. Totally. Um, yeah. So I kind of was thinking about like. And I think Sirius probably absorbed all of that with the assumption mm. that Regulus would get the same. Yeah. Or would understand the same or would make friends the same. But if you mm. think about it, his friends are three... Um, Purebloods. And no, all of them are Sacred 28 families. Mm. Crouch and Shafiq and Rosier. Mm-hmm. They're all Sacred 28. No dogs. Right? Rosier is Sacred 28, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, and he's in Slytherin, and I mean, it's sort of implied in the um, series that Slytherin House isn't taking a lot of Muggleborns, mm-hmm. and I think, I think a lot of Muggleborns probably going into school would have done that thing that Harry does, yeah, where he like thinks, oh God, not that house, yeah. Like, totally. Oh, no, anything. But put me in Ravenclaw. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll be smart. They won't find me out. It's fine. Yeah. Exactly. I'll just be the weird smart one. Yeah. That's, that'll work. That's cool. Put me in there. And the hat's like, okay. <laughs> this yeah. Because is... at the end of the day, the hat takes your desires into consideration. Yeah. Yeah. And we've discussed that before yeah. on the, the podcast, whether or not it's entirely mm. person driven mm. or if the hat does make some kind of choice based on like reading their thoughts mm. what if the your thoughts are like super fucked up and weird like, yeah like me as an 11 year old i don't know where i would have gotten sorted i don't think i was thinking anything bad at a, as an 11 year old but like what if you're a weirdo like I what if i was a weirdo what if you're like luna lovegood and you're like do 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 like as the, the hat is on your head like yeah. thinking about nargles and stuff yeah. oh, obviously he just puts it in rainbow yeah exactly yeah. gifted child go you're weird <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i don't know do you think as an 11 year old you would have sorted slytherin i honestly don't know i think you would have sorted ravenclaw really yeah. I, I before I like really thought about it, I kind of automatically assumed I would have been a Hufflepuff. No, I don't think so. No, 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 no. no. Wow. No. Okay. Yeah, I guess Ravenclaw. <laughs> Maybe. I didn't know you at yeah. eleven though. Maybe you were different. Maybe you were a little Hufflepuff. You were the weird kid who was always reading. Yeah, I was. That. It's Ravenclaw. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I was reading and like constructing Rube Goldberg machines in my room. Yeah, you yeah, were okay. reading like right. religious literature yeah. as an eleven. Yeah, you that's were... very true. Okay, if it wasn't Slytherin, it would have been Ravenclaw. You're no, right. it would have been Ravenclaw. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's only because you read the series as an adult. Mm-hmm. I think that you ended up feeling mm-hmm. so much more attached mm-hmm. to Slytherin. I actually didn't even start feeling particularly attached to Slytherin until I took the sorting, like. Because I had never really thought about it. And then you were like, what's your house? And I was like, I don't know. And I took the sorting hat quiz and it was like Slytherin. And I was at first in disbelief. And I was like, what? (laughs) There's no way I'm in Slytherin. So I made another account. And then I took it again and got Slytherin again. And I did that three times. Oh my God. I got Slytherin every time. Oh my God. (laughs) And then I was like, I got to think about this. (laughs) Okay. And then you came to terms with it. And then I came to terms with it. (laughs) I think it's very fitting for you. Mm. Yeah, I do too. When I was 11, Mm -hmm. I would have obviously sorted Gryffindor. Obviously. Which is the same thing that would have happened when I was 12, 14, 19, 23, Mm -hmm. 27, and now. Mm -hmm. That's true. That's 100, (laughs) but you're pathologically Gryffindor. There's not such a thing. Pathologic. (laughs) That's a rude thing to say. I hope you know that. It's It's not rude. It's endearing. (laughs) I am endeared (laughs) by your Gryffindor. That's lucky. (laughs) Not everyone is so charmed. <laughs> I feel like, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. Do you it's feel fine. like what? Just like resigned? <laughs> no, I feel like I am just the person who just goes about life mm-hmm. and like just goes and does things. And goes like, about life valiantly. <laughs> yeah, but. Gallantly. But like, like you said, it's not really what you would imagine it would be. Like, I 
valiantly pick up your loom and rip mm. it to pieces. Absolutely. <laughs> like, I, I valiantly attempt to make coffee and, like, burn shit. I, every time we go shopping for home decor or literally anything, I, we have to, like, pick it up and test it. Like, is this you proof? Yeah, because I break is every single Griffin thing I touch. Because like, I... Yeah, <laughs> because I need something to be like the sword of Gryffindor for me to wield it about yeah. without like breaking. Which it. includes everything from like dishes to Any- pot plants, tables, anything, literally <laughs> anything. Yeah. Seating, seating, all of it. <laughs> we can't really have all that fragile glass. No, we can't. Well, we can. We do buy it, and then I break it. Yeah. Yeah. Like without fail. Do you remember that one time we bought like a um this that really nice white plant pot and then like within twenty four hours you shattered it. And then I spent a painstaking hour like gluing it back together. Let's talk about something else. <laughs> I'm here for it. <laughs> I, I can't believe you put up with it. It's just it works. Every because- time I hear glass shattering, I'm like, there she goes again. <laughs> God damn it. Yeah, I don't know what that is. I've always been that way. Mm. I've always, do you know what like my parents blamed it on? Mm. Did you know when I was like ten years or eleven years old? Mm. About I went through a whole like six month period where I didn't sit down at a table without knocking things over. <laughs> like, that makes sense. Every single meal, I would basically spill water everywhere—juice, food, oh, anything—just like God. fling it. One time at a restaurant. I flipped the entire table. <laughs> that makes sense. That's in character. I don't even know how. It was like my my people that I was with were so embarrassed and like flabbergasted and I was just sitting there like, "Wow, what happened?" That was a really flimsy table. And it's so endearing. <laughs> that, I, I, that moved a lot easier I have than I thought it would. Watched you pull chairs out from tables and just like whip them like <laughs> Three feet further than they were meant to go because they weren't as heavy as they should have been. Yeah, as they should have been, right? <laughs> Things aren't made like they used to be. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> oh God, yeah, so I need, funny. I need like solid. Yeah. Our house yeah. is entirely built of like solid concrete, which is yeah. so surprising. Why you could hear me? Yeah. Before, because that's through like a four feet. Of, or th- at least a meter. Yeah, and on the opposite end of the house. Of con- solid concrete. Yeah. With many other layers yeah. of concrete. And I was wearing headphones on a Zoom call. Oh my god. <laughs> and I was that's like, a- is that her? <laughs> that's really embarrassing. That's really funny. <laughs> okay, again, let's talk about something else. <laughs> let's amazing. talk about the chapter. Ask oh, yeah. me things about the chapter. Um, <clears throat> yes, so I really loved Jack. Yeah. Um, I don't know why I wanted to do that, but since forever, mm. like a year ago probably, yeah. I was like, look, when he runs away, I want him to meet someone, like yeah. a kid who lives on the street. Yeah, I remember you had that like idea mm. for a long time. Yeah, Jack and Cricket. It's so freaking cute. Yeah, I love that. And I love the idea of him just like in an alley in a puddle doing graffiti. <laughs> Mud graffiti? Mud graffiti on a dumpster, like... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> graffiti is one of my guilty pleasures I retained in life. Yeah. Like, I got rid of most of my guilty pleasures. Yeah. <laughs> See blood magic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but graffiti is one of the things, like, I... It's really funny because you do it all the time, and I'm surprised you haven't written it into the story yet, because we go vandalish <laughs> on a regular basis. 
this is the first time that I've really done that. Yeah. It's a big part of my personality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think- As like adults in our thirties, like you wouldn't, and we're very professional humans and you would not think that we go out to like vandalize shit at two in the morning. You just said we're very professional humans. And my brain was like, are you kidding? <laughs> what? Like, and then I realized what I do for work and yeah. like, yeah, yeah, I'm actually yeah. super professional. Yeah, you're super professional and responsible. And yet we still go out at two in the morning to like draw on the side of like mountains. Yeah, my personal favorite is, like, the country we live in has tons of um, little road stops. Mm. Like, just on the side of the highway, there's, like, places where you can pull over. Mm. And there's... um, Like, concrete barriers. There's cement Mm. picnic tables Mm. and, like, cement um, stools Mm. with them. And they're a perfect drawing surface. So I leave little messages for people. (laughs) (laughs) Which I find great Mm. and fun and... I think I have always rebelled really hard against mm. everything, mm-hmm. but in my old age, I've mellowed out in many ways, mm. Yes, but not in the arena of defacing public property. <laughs> At least you're not drawing like dicks on them. <laughs> you know what? Why not? People should be a little less afraid of dicks, okay? I know I'm just it- saying, your graffiti is pretty creative and very nice. <laughs> I usually try to leave, like, motivation. That's actually a thing. Like, here in this country, mm. so gangsterism is, is a huge problem, and there's tons of gang graffiti. Um, and that's a significant portion of the graffiti you see. Mm. But then the rest of the graffiti, there's a great street art culture here, mm. um, which I don't know if a lot of people would expect. A lot of people think, like, New York and London mm. for street art. Um or, I don't know, other places. No. Uh, but there's actually some really, really cool traditions of street art. And a lot of, like, street art that is uplifting mm. and empowering and, like, positive messages. And, you know, like, at the local hospital in our very, mm. very small town, there's a huge piece of graffiti that says everything is going to be okay. Mm. Or, like, you know, even I was at the blood bank the other day. Mm. That's not weird. That's, like, a normal place that I I would be. (laughs) She's not a vampire or anything. Don't look into it. (laughs) So I was at the blood bank the other day, and um, it also said, like, you know, everything will turn out to be all right. Someone had just, like, written it in pen on the wall. It's so cute. Yeah, it was, like, and especially, you know, that's also inside a hospital. Mm. And uh, I think there is a sort of odd tradition here of people leaving good messages. <laughs> Affirming messages to yeah, strangers. Or yeah, or kindness or, yeah. you know, some kind of, like, acknowledgement of the struggle of life. Or, yeah. or that we're all struggling or that, mm. you know, struggle, whatever you're going through, may be temporary. Mm. Um, and I think... We're all in this together. <laughs> yeah. Mm. There's very much that sentiment. And I, I think that's such a lovely tradition Mm. and like i love finding messages Mm. like that so i often leave them as well not Mm. necessarily everything is going to be okay yeah but um i'm like because i work in in um like the medicine and healthcare Mm. world i often leave messages that are somewhat related in terms Mm. of like stigma busting things i talk about hiv all the time Mm. you know i talk about finding ways to take care of yourself or mm. things like that. Yeah. Um, and usually small messages, but things I hope people will see and gain something from. Yeah. So yeah, that's my, that's like good shit. <laughs> yeah, that <is> that good <clears throat> shit. 
So I'm glad Sirius got to do some garbage <laughs> graffiti. Yeah, maybe I'll write more about mm. it later. It's just something that I've never thought of. You know why? It's because mm. we never write about being in the city. Yeah. Uh, we write about being in the forest. Yeah, or being at school. Be, or being in natural places. Yeah. Um, and the, I, was, I was just about to say it's really hard to graffiti in nature, and then I realized we go to the forest and do that on rocks all the time. Rocks, but never trees. Yeah, no, never yeah. trees. And rocks, it's like... Uh, or, or even doing it on rocks is like so impermanent mm. um, because it usually washes away mm. and uh, the rocks here aren't river rock smooth mm. so it's more difficult to yeah. do but anyway that's sort of irrelevant <laughs> the reason I don't think about it is because I don't ever th- so to me you're leaving these messages in the midst of chaos mm-hmm. right in the midst of stress and and difficulty and a feeling of isolation, mm. perhaps, mm-hmm. um, where it would be comforting for someone to reach out to you. But I never get that feeling in the forest mm. because yeah. it already is a place of like comfort. such comfort yeah. and serenity and just... The you best. don't need messages from anyone else. Yeah. Like the forest is the message itself. Yeah. You know? It is immensely healing and lovely. Mm. And yeah, <coughs> and the likelihood yeah. of anyone ever finding it is so... Yeah, no, it's been planned anyways. Yeah, no, I love that. So it is funny that I did write like the first, Mm -hmm. and it's not even graffiti. Like, so in my head, I think of it as a bit like graffiti, Mm. but it's not really. Yeah, yeah. He's just he's drawing a rune for the sake of drawing the rune, and I kind of wanted to work in. I did a previous chapter Mm. talking about runes, but I kind of want to work in this idea that he's like adopting some of this new language for himself, like this new symbolism, Mm. because sometimes especially if you aren't raised around language that is mm. used to discuss how you feel, what you yeah. want, like, you know, how to engage with the world in a way that is healing and up- uplifting. Mm. Sometimes it's difficult to know how to start talking like yeah. that or start asking <clears throat> for that or start right. thinking about that. Yeah. And the runes are a type of symbolic language that already carries a lot of that connotation. Mm. And especially, like, in the context of, like, stories and mythology, a lot of that is sort of readily available to someone Mm. should they want to access it. Which is one of the reasons why it's persisted so well. Yeah. Um, So, and also, everyone headcanons serious with all of his tattoos. Mm. Um, And I wanted to sort of, like, start Start building building this idea that he's using this language Mm. to... To engage with magic, but also how he feels, and mm-hmm. also this idea of his like connection with the yeah. old gods. Oh, I love this idea too about like, you know, I think the way that J.K. wrote the magical world is like a very hard system of magic, mm-hmm. and I think um, in reality, like, there's so much more nuance to it, and I like really love playing with that. Yeah, not just so much more nuance, but we've talked before. There must be mm-hmm. so many systems, and there must yeah. be so many ways that magic can manifest. Yeah. And this idea of using just a wand and just incantations mm. is a very so limited reductionist look mm. uh, at magic. And yeah, I, I love the idea that he starts using these alternative mm. methods of accessing mm. um, magic, and even this idea that his using this rune which one of the meanings is to like ask for a guardian Mm. 
And then this kid just shows up and, like, escorts him where he needs to go and basically is his guardian. Because otherwise, he's a 14-year-old kid in London by himself. Who's, like, actually never explored London. No, and is incredibly vulnerable. Totally. I mean, like, if you think about it, he goes from point A to point B by magical means or in his family's, like, fucking stagecoach. Yeah. You know? Exactly. Um, And never actually experiences... You know the in betweens, mm-hmm. you know the in between muggle spaces of point A and point B. I mean, if I kind of tried to write that too, that <clears throat> wizarding people generally don't. Yeah, they just don't access the rest mm-hmm. of the world because it's just like why? Why? Why they? would you? Yeah, yeah. they totally. go to wizarding spaces mm-hmm. and they isolate themselves that way, and they yeah. isolate isolate their children mm-hmm. also that way. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, I, I thought that. it was I thought it was a nice lead in to be like mm. aha and the guardian appears. Yeah. No, I love that. It's <laughs> yeah. very cool. With cricket. With cricket. It's so precious. <laughs> and I love um <clears throat> learning how to jump a turnstile, like really getting that delinquency, like <laughs> stepping it up already night one. Yeah. <laughs> Graffiti. Stealing train rides. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I was also thinking like serious later on also um He's this character who has so little regard for the rules. Mm-hmm. And I like the idea that he's, like, so timid in the muggle world. Yeah. And then someone's like, nah, buddy, let me show you how it's done. Yeah, totally. <laughs> this is how the youth work. Yeah. <laughs> and he just takes to it. Fuck the system. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, this feels Same. right. <laughs> this is relatable. <laughs> We're like, so similar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> We are speaking the same language. Yeah, exactly. We're from two different worlds. Same vibe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> same WhatsApp group. Yeah, same WhatsApp group. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, and um, I love the idea that, you know, he's timid of the muggle world because he doesn't know a lot about it, but he still doesn't have any fear. Like, that whole time, he wasn't scared. No. He was like, I am outside. I have my things. And I'm going forward. Yeah. And that was about it. Just, like, fearless, like... Like do do do, but the things he's afraid of are like he says, um, being in the wizarding world mm-hmm. is more intimidating now because mm-hmm. he's trying to like cross the line totally. of, of allegiances with his family and mm-hmm. where he's been so cosseted and yeah. so protected. Obviously, exposed to all of the horribleness that mm-hmm. they're doing and sucked into this like soul destroying life. Yes, but also incredibly safe in the wizarding world. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's. Wealthy, pure blood, sacred twenty-eight, yep. family well-known. Mm-hmm. He could also walk in any wizarding space and totally. be untouchable. Yeah, like that chapter you wrote with the kids bullying Remus yeah. at night, yeah, yeah. and he shows up and it's like, oh, it's one of the blacks. Yeah. Like we can't touch him. Yeah, totally. I mean, he's giving up all of that safety. Yeah. Um, and so his fear is more about, I don't want to be somewhere where they can track me. I don't yeah. want to be somewhere where they have a hold on me. Mm-hmm. Like. The Muggle world is unknown, but yeah. it's also untouchable. Mm. I mean, it's totally it's off the map for them. <clears throat> yeah, and I, I love this because I mean, in canon, you know, Sirius said I left home and moved in with James, mm-hmm. right? So we that's something that we're still building to, but like, but he says that for the summer of his fifth year, yeah, or summer after fourth year, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so like, we have plans to get there. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it's happening. Yeah, yeah. He's just got (laughs) on... 
You just go in a remus first. Yeah. <laughs> it's safer. <laughs> yeah. There's like a stepwise approach yeah, to exactly, this. exactly. Of running away from home. <laughs> yeah, and he still has to confront his family. I mean, if you think about it, yeah. he left in the middle of the night after they're all drunk and going to bed. Yeah, like they have no idea he left. Exactly. I mean, Regulus might have like a raised eyebrow about how he showed up in his room and then left. But, I mean, the rest of his family... No fucking clue. Yeah. When are they going to find out he's gone? Like the next day when would they even brings care breakfast? The next or would day? they? Or would they know? You know, yeah. like how long will it take for them to notice? Yeah. So that'll be something that's built into your next chapter. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Which yeah, we will address when we address. Mm-hmm. But that's the more intimidating thing. Yeah. Instead, he is very fearless. Mm. And then speaking of his like um, not knowing how the Muggle world works. Not understanding that you can just walk up to a door and knock on it. Like something so basic is just showing up at someone's house. Like having no concept of how a house can function without a house elf. I, oh, I, I, immediate, so I immediately thought of that because I yeah. have a horrible time with the idea of someone showing up mm-hmm. at my house, mm-hmm. unacceptable. I literally will not answer the door yeah. if we have not arranged for you to arrive at my house mm-hmm. or me going to someone else's house without formally yeah. asking and like getting an invitation mm-hmm. and getting mm-hmm. confirmation. And then when I go, being like, hi, I'm here to see yeah. at this time, we have an appointment. Totally. Like even with people I'm friends with, mm-hmm. Which is something that was so deeply ingrained in me yeah. from like a very young person. Mm. That's so fascinating because that was not how I grew up. I would, even if, even if I knew the person I wanted to talk to was at home. Yeah. And I was in their neighborhood. Yeah. I was driving by. Mm-hmm. I would never mm. stop at their house without like prior approval. That is so fascinating. A friend, a very close friend of mine once, I was very sick or mm. like just feeling miserable and, mm. um, and I was like, yeah, I'm just going to take a nap. And then a very close friend of mine tried to show up and bring me food mm-hmm. and I refused to answer the door. I literally sent them a message was like, never do that again. And they were like, I'm trying to be, take care of you. And I'm like, this is a boundary. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is not something I can deal with. Yeah. <laughs> Which seems very weird and very cruel, mm. um, but it's like one of those things I'm just not comfortable with mm. that I know about myself. Yeah. Shame that friend. It took a long time for them to recover from Shame. that and like to believe that I really care about them as a friend. Yeah. I love being friends with them. Yeah. It's it's nothing about them. Mm. It's just like this is a boundary. Yeah. I I can't can't. Do I it. won't open the door. Mm. <laughs> I You're have, hilarious. My car is in the driveway. You know I'm home. Yeah. I know I'm home. Yeah. Still won't open the door. Oh my god, you're so funny. Why? It's just I can't relate to that at all. I cannot relate to people who just show up at other people's houses. We grew I, up in two very different worlds. I literally like want to send a letter to be like, <laughs> please respond. Can we agree to meet? Yeah, right. RSVP. Yeah, yeah. I send my regards. Yeah. So funny. It's just, yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. hilarious. So then I just wrote that into yeah. sort of and like transformed it into serious, being like, yeah. I don't understand how this works. Yeah, totally. I need to announce myself mm-hmm. and then I need a response yeah. in order to go into the mm-hmm. house. 
Yeah. <laughs> That's super funny. I can't wait to read Remus's like perspective of yeah. that. <laughs> it's amazing. Because I think like for me, if I had a friend show up at two in the morning, I'd be like, You alright, buddy? <laughs> like, <laughs> if I had to go to a friend's house mm. at two in the morning for like a emergency mm. reason, I would sleep in my car in their driveway rather oh. than go to the house god and then in the morning i would phone them and be like hi i'm so sorry i've been in your driveway all night is it all right if i come in oh my god otherwise like i would be like wake me the fuck up wake me up (laughs) wake me up (laughs) sleep in the driveway I probably would sleep somewhere else in the car. Oh, my like God. Like, down the road yeah, a down little bit. I wouldn't park in there. Oh, my dear Jesus. Yeah, no. We are two different people. <laughs> if I was had an emergency and I needed to go to somebody's house, I would pitch the fuck up and be like, this is an emergency. <laughs> I suppose it depends on what you think of as an emergency. Mm-hmm. Because there's nothing so bad that I can imagine that I wouldn't just wait until the morning and mm-hmm. just sleep in the car. Yeah. Just chalk that up to your self-flagellating. How is that self-flagellating? How? You'd rather sleep in a car than, like, call your friend that you need? But why do I need them that second? Why are you sleeping in your car? Waiting for them? Yeah, but if if I'm asleep, it doesn't matter. You could be sleeping in their house. No, I would prefer to sleep Oh, my God. (laughs) Sweet baby Jesus. I don't self-flagellate. I think I just have a different perspective. I disagree fundamentally. (laughs) (laughs) I think you self-flagellate all the time. You just don't recognize it. (laughs) Maybe because it doesn't feel like self-flagellating because I already think... Because you've been doing it since like you were three weeks old. (laughs) Because I already think my ego is like too big and I need some damping down. You gotta like knock it down. I need it. Like in order to be around other people and then not hate me, I need to just like (laughs) calm down. It's like in order in order to feel motivated to do anything Mm -hmm. in terms of like studying, I need to feel like I'm not gonna do well. Which Mm -hmm. takes active effort on the part of others. (laughs) Like and, then, and I don't help because I'm like, you're going to do fine. You're going to be fine. I feel like it's just so different to how most people feel because most yeah. people have that internal anxious voice yeah. being like, you're not going to do well. You're going to fail. Mm-hmm. You're going to go horribly. Like you're, yeah. you're, you should be so worried about this. You're not good enough. Mm-hmm. And in my head, I'm like, no, I'll be fine. Mm-hmm. I don't need to do extra work. I know this. Mm-hmm. The reality being that like, I probably could really use a study session or two. Yeah. <laughs> But I just don't do it. Uh. <laughs> I feel like you're an enigma. <laughs> that's what that that's is. That's just how it is. Yeah. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. I need negative feedback to thrive. Mm. <laughs> that's why I do so well in medicine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're as horrible as that is. Oh my god. <laughs> anyway, what else do you have to say about the chapter? Um, I loved it. It was super fun. I really enjoyed writing it. So far, nothing will touch how much I loved the Hebridean Blacks chapter. That chapter mm-hmm. is my favorite of both works. Actually, what's your favorite? My favorite chapter that I've written. Yeah, ever. Blood Magic and this one. That's a great fucking question. 
I wonder what the readers think. Yeah. They're, okay, actually, if, the Hestia chapter is also amazing. Oh, yeah, I love the Hestia chapter. If you all have and a Night favorite Magic. chapter of Blood Magic or Death Other Origin Stories, we would love to hear it. Yeah. Um, I think there are, like, parts of chapters that I, like, adore. I don't know if there's, like, a single whole chapter that I'm like, this is the The Hebridean one. Blacks yeah, yeah, chapter. Yeah. Every sentence of that chapter, yeah, I'm like, just like, fuck yeah. Gold, yeah. Mm. <laughs> Actually, and the dragon chapter from Blood Magic yeah. is also really satisfying. Mm. Yeah, I don't think I have a favorite chapter yet of Death and Other Origin story, Stories. Um, the Fidelius chapter. Well, that's... Blood Ma- oh, that's sorry. Blood Magic, I yeah. was just still thinking about your favorite chapter, that you, yeah. you don't have one you feel like is good all around. Um, I, yeah, I think it would probably be a combo between the, the Thestral Cave and um, the Fidelius. I really love those. And the birth scene you wrote really well, yeah, too. Yeah, I fucking love that chapter, too. Such relatable content. (laughs) Yeah. So there's like bits and pieces that I like really adore. Um, And then this story, um, I don't think I have one yet. I think it's still to come. Any guesses what like part of it it'll be? I have several scenes from seventh year already written. Oh yeah. No, Mm -hmm. those are great. Yeah. But like, so it's pre Azkaban, pre end of school. Yeah. No, it'll probably, like, it'll be that, but I think it's going to be um, just before Azkaban. I think those are probably going to be some of my favorite chapters. Why? So I can pretend that they'll be happy <laughs> for just a little fucking bit. Oh my god! That is the most depressing shit. What was that TikTok you showed me this morning? Like, oh I gotta god. stop crying over Remus <laughs> fucking Lupin every single night. Like, yes, same. Like... <laughs> I fucking need, same. I need two months where everything's okay. Guys. I, just I just need two, two months. months. I just need it'll so get me through. So you say that, but mm-hmm. like, I'm not planning for it to go all that easy. I, I don't. I didn't think you were. I know it's going to be a roller coaster of a nightmare situation because they'll be young and stupid and have mm-hmm. zero coping skills mm-hmm. and terrible relationship dynamics. Mm-hmm. I understand that, but they'll both think they have a future. <laughs> And we're just going to coast in that denial. Do you think Remus Lupin ever believed he had a future? For one shining moment when he was 20 years old. And that's what I'm clinging to. Before everyone he loved died. Yeah. And then he was on his his own for 12 fucking years. Yeah. yeah. Or died and went to prison. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. God, you're going to have to write those 12 years. Yep. I'm going to have to write it, and I've got plans, and it's going to be great and terrible. <laughs> and I'm sorry in advance. Is it worse than the plans I have for Sirius in Azkaban? It's just going to be different. Yeah. It's a different kind of hell. Just We're covering readers pre- the gates of hell. Prepare yeah. yourselves. Mm-hmm. Like, have the chocolate and the snacks and yeah, the, the tissue and like the hydrant. Get, get a, a water bottle. Yeah. Yeah. It's call be, a friend, call your therapist, it's gonna debrief. Be, it's going to be bad. It's going to be rough. I'm so sorry. Mm. so much processing to do. Why do you think we write stories like this? Because profound childhood trauma. No, man, that's a cop-out answer now. <laughs> Give a real answer. That is my real answer. <laughs> no, but what about profound childhood trauma? Like, what kind of childhood trauma makes you want to write about two people who fall in love against incredible adversity and over decades of mm. like pining mm. and confusion mm. and terror and uncertainty and like mm. self-deprecation 
And then have that all taken away from them. Well, we didn't make that decision. No, we decided to write about it. Yeah, we it. decided to write about this it. This is not a They Live AU. We no, could have written that. No, why did not. we... It's why? the same reason we can't write fluff. It's the same reason why we can't appreciate coffee shop AUs and why we can't appreciate non-magic AUs. <laughs> it's because there is a part of us who just like is so fundamentally uncomfortable with that kind of... What, with happiness? Happiness, yeah. With a universe where everything is joyful mm-hmm. and works out. Mm-hmm. What does that say about us? What does it say? What do you think? I think both of us really like sort of paying homage to reality. Yeah. Like, it, I could make up something that's mm. beautiful and lovely and mm. everyone lives and everyone's happy. And I understand mm. so many people write fan fiction. Yeah to live that and experience yeah. it and and develop their n- internal narrative about mm. how it becomes possible and yeah. that that's also a incredible thing mm. but i think i like writing about what it's really like for people yeah same or really like for us mm. or some people yeah I think we've both just, like, lived through situations and gotten to the other side and, like, like you said, pay homage to it. You pay homage to that pain that happened. Yeah, and to be fair, I don't think of this fic as having a bad ending or having an mm. unhappy ending. No, I think it's going to have a very real ending. I don't agree with you, but Okay. <laughs> Well, that's a discussion for a whole other day. We're going to save that. In like five that's, a, years. that's a fundamental difference just between like esoteric beliefs. <laughs> no, but in like five years, we're going to be having like an argument over like how we, how Concepts we want the Concepts of life ending. and death, yeah. yeah or, or in how we want the ending to, yeah. to read for, yeah. for people. Totally. And whether or not we can tag it as like a happy ending or not. Depends on your definition of happy. Depends on your <laughs> definition of ending. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh God. oh, God. I hope you're all ready for those discussions. This podcast Wow. <laughs> write a fucking dissertation in here. Yeah, no kidding. I should be getting a PhD in Remus Lupin. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you think that's offered somewhere? I'll fucking make it happen. <laughs> Who can I call? <laughs> there are so many people in academia who write about the Harry Potter series. Yeah. Like, there are tons of people who are writing theses and mm. papers and totally even whole classes university level classes mm. that discuss the harry potter universe and like the various different aspects of it mm. i would take a class like that in a heartbeat oh yeah like hands down no questions asked sign me the fuck up i would teach a class <laughs> yeah me too <laughs> who wants a lecture in remus lupin <laughs> Yeah, okay, wait, if you were to teach a class at, like, let's say you're working at, I don't know, what's a big university that's well-known, that's not too stuffy? You're asking the wrong person. Oh, God, no, that's also too stuffy. Mm. I was going to say University of Chicago, and then I was like, no. that's very stuffy. (laughs) (laughs) What about um, University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign? I've never even heard of that, but okay. (laughs) You're from the Midwest. I've never heard of that. (laughs) Okay, fine. Midwestern Public University. Okay. 
what would be the name of the class that you teach that's Harry Potter related? That is such a good question. It would, the thing that immediately comes to mind is it would be related to the concept of Draco Malfoy's lack of a redemption arc. Oh. And why the fandom is so obsessed with the fact that he should have one. Oh my god, I would take that class. <laughs> I sit around and talk yeah. with you about this all yeah. the time. See blood magic. Yeah. <laughs> and I would still take that yeah. class. Because it's yeah. it's sort of like a never-ending question. Yeah, you, you could just like, you could go down that rabbit hole. Okay, what would your like big topics do you think be? Like if you were to break down like mm-hmm. what your your themes of the week or whatever would be um i'd want to do like a character analysis Mm -hmm. of him in general like Mm -hmm. who he was where he came from what he turned out to be what he did during the war and like who he became after we're not including cursed child that is we're not even looking at that um and i would want to discuss things like um, the concept of when people say like he deserved a redemption arc, like I never like the phrase like he deserved it because Draco was like an inherently shitty person in the books. Like he didn't deserve a redemption arc, but he was capable of redeeming himself. You know, like everybody has like redeeming qualities. That's an um, interesting question whether someone can deserve a redemption arc yeah, or not exactly. because that implies that there are people who don't. Yeah, what makes someone deserve it and well, that, not that's deserve just it. it. Like yeah. that, that would be like a whole other discussion topic. Um, then you would have to ask yourself something like, does Barty Crouch Sr. deserve a redemption yeah, arc? Yeah, definitely. And what does redemption look like? You know, what does that mean? And how long does it take to happen? Yeah. How long does it take to be redeemed? Yeah. At what point are you fully redeemed? Yeah. Is there such a thing as being fully redeemed? Do you ever outlive the shitty things that you did as a young person? Or can you quantify them in some way? Like how many people they affected or how much harm they caused or how much suffering? Totally. These are the things I'd want to talk about. And then looking at examples of people who were recruited into extremist groups as young people mm-hmm. and people who did successfully get out and managed to turn their life around and mm. and you know um work to do social justice you know it reminds me of those um uh all the siblings in the westboro baptist church family yeah. there's like uh one of the children who's written a book and mm-hmm. is like super involved in other yeah um social justice work and like anti-religious hate work absolutely in in like sort of response to that Mm. on a on a smaller level you could think about all of the people who are so vocal now in the ex-mormon community yeah i was thinking i can't remember his name but he was um in a neo-nazi group um he got recruited when he was like 14 Mm -hmm. and he didn't get out until he was like 25 and then mm-hmm. he dedicated his life to getting other kids out oh, wow. and trying to get them on the right side. And not only just doing that, but like really committing to doing anti-racist work and mm-hmm. like, um, like really discussing a lot of the fundamental issues around that, which I think is so appropriate for like Draco's character specifically. Yeah. And also like at what age mm-hmm. do we start holding people accountable for their, totally. their actions yeah. or, um, you know, at what age do we say that they are too impressionable or too yeah. innocent or whatever to, to yeah. have enough autonomy to reject something? Mm. So, yeah, kind of, that'd be my whole class. <laughs> it sounds amazing. <laughs> I would totally take that. Wouldn't be anything related to my major, but I would fit it in. <laughs> what would your class be? 
Oh God, I have no idea. <laughs> There's nothing that I do in my professional life that is really reflected well in the series. Mm. Um, but even if it wasn't related to professional life, like just like what tickles your fancy that you would want to just like wax poetic about? So much, probably dragons. <laughs> <laughs> Dragon husbandry. <laughs> yes, I would. I would totally. I would totally do that. Oh my god. Or maybe I would do something like mythology of the forbidden forest oh yeah or yeah something like that Shit, yeah that'd I, be great i think it wouldn't necessarily be related to characters like yours mm. would be or like you know very hard canon topics mm. because i think a lot of my interest lies in the world mm. of magic and like the world building that extends beyond it yeah mm. Or, alternatively, I would love to do something like, we talked about this a whole lot, especially in the cat's um, mm. transfiguration mm. section, where we talk about like what magic means to each person and yeah. like, how forms of magic that cause an embodiment of something mm. can be personalized. Yeah, like how of, it manifests. Yeah, because of that person's experience or their yeah. thoughts, that sort of thing. That's the shit. I also love concepts. Of, it like, would be like moral philosophy, but magical. <laughs> You would be teaching Shafiq's class. That's what this would be. <laughs> I love moral. It's not that I love moral yeah, philosophy. Yeah, you do. Don't lie to me. You fucking love moral philosophy. It was literally what we were just talking about. Like yeah. this idea of like, you know, what is good, what is bad, what is redemption. Mm. This is all moral philosophy. Yeah. So technically you love it too. Yeah. I never said I didn't. You're just in denial of your own love. <laughs> it's a love-hate relationship. <laughs> I spend so much time talking about ethics that yeah. like, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. it becomes it becomes less lighthearted and more devastating because isn't that our whole thing? Yes, but <laughs> but because in order to like do what I do and mm-hmm. do it ethically, there's a lot of horrible mm. sort of individual decisions that have to mm. be made. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, we could even talk about the concept of the greater good. Is the greater good the greater good? Oh. Is it ever acceptable? No. Is it probably not? I don't know. My brain hurts thinking about it. But if you say probably not, then I'm you like, disagree I'm, with the whole way I run my profession. I'm such a Slytherin. <laughs> like that's all I could think when you were like <laughs> And I was like, yeah, I'm a selfish son of a bitch. <laughs> Ironic though, because it's yeah. regulus the archetype yeah. of the Slytherin yeah. who's using this argument. Mm. So you never think the greater good is acceptable. I don't know. Depends on who's the greater good. Against Literally the greater good. I don't know, man. <laughs> I don't know about that. Yeah, my whole profession runs on the, the concept of the most good for the most people. Which is so funny because in my profession that's not what I've been doing. What do you mean? I've been doing very individualized care for a very small percentage of the population. Yeah, but your isn't your professional goal the most good for the most people? Overall. I mean, like, theoretically. Yeah. But, like, that's not what I'm doing in practice. Yeah, but think about it. In practice, I also make decisions that are devastating for people. Mm. Still not... means that my overall professional goal is the most good for the most people. Those devastating decisions mm. come because yeah. they mean good for others. I don't make those decisions. That's, yeah. <laughs> T- 
technically a committee makes those decisions for us. Yeah. Although some of them are made on an individual basis. Mm. Yeah, I don't make those decisions. I've also watched those decisions being made by a colleague and disagreed with them and have yeah. had no recourse to change it. Yeah. Which is terrible. Yeah. Totally. That's the way it is. Mm. Yeah. My profession is like that. It'd be like that. I quit my profession. <laughs> I know paint in my garage. <laughs> which I is, have regressed. Which is for the greater good. That's for the greater good. It's for my greater yeah, good. It's for, it's for all of... It's also yeah. mine. Yeah. I'm also benefiting yeah. from this. Everyone's real happy. Except for my ex-colleagues. <laughs> Do you think they're unhappy? Yes. I think a part of them is very unhappy because I know I'm one of the most reliable people. You are the most reliable person, first of all. Don't sell yourself short. (laughs) But second of all, I also still think that's a greater good concept because you have taught them boundaries and taught them Mm. that there's repercussions for treating your colleagues like they're disposable. Mm -hmm. That's a valuable concept. Yeah. They must pay for it. Clients must pay for it. Mm -hmm. Totally. Greater good. Greater good. I guess so. (laughs) I fucking guess so. (laughs) Okay, other topics that you want to talk about in this episode? Um, I don't think so. I just, I'm still hung up on the idea of Sirius Black screaming into the letterbox on the door. <laughs> and I cannot... What wait. else in his mind would that be used for? Yeah, it's no, not totally, a letterbox. Totally, like, I just, I love that idea that he's like, what could this possibly fucking be other than to scream into it to obviously, announce my presence? Obviously, it's literally a portal into the house. Yeah, exactly. There's even a little flap There's cover. a flap. Yeah. <laughs> Get a whisper into it. Yeah. <laughs> or yell. <laughs> yell, probably. Yeah, totally. Just make sure you're heard. You gotta make sure. God, I fucking love that. It's just, it brings me so much joy. Like, for the rest of my life, whenever I'm in a bad mood, I'm just going to think about Sirius (laughs) screaming into a letterbox. Sirius Orion Black! Here to see Remus Lupin! So sorry, I don't have an appointment! Please let me in. With such sincere apologies. Just like, oh my god. I love it so much. So much decorum that is, like, tenuously held. I like thinking of the dichotomy of, like, Sirius Black, the rule breaker, but Sirius Black with so much decorum. Yeah, no, that's your entire personality. Yeah, I know. Your whole personality. (laughs) That's, like, you getting back from graffitiing something at two in the morning and then being, like, concerned about the place settings on the table. (laughs) Don't look at me like that. You know it's true. (laughs) No, I would be concerned about, like, cleaning the house in order to be presentable mm-hmm. for, like, mm-hmm. the off chance that someone may visit. Might randomly show up even though we keep our gate locked and you don't let anyone come over <laughs> without, like, three days' notice. Okay, it's getting a little personal. <laughs> I didn't come here to be dread. Let's talk about moral philosophy again. That's my safe space. Is that your safe space? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, you dragged me this morning because I don't know how to throw anything away because that's an inherent trait of artists. <laughs> and hoarders. And artists. And people with profound childhood trauma. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who end up hoarding. Yeah. 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 There's a step by step. Yeah, there's a... <laughs> Artist. No, no, no. Profound childhood trauma. Yeah. Some light collecting. <laughs> Artist. Artist. <laughs> hoarding. <laughs> swiftly down the line. It's linear. Yeah, I'm in step three. (laughs) Next is hoarding. It's fine. I'm in the background just throwing stuff out behind your back. 
I've started throwing the glass bottles away, okay? Wow. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I'm happy to hear that. Yeah, good. <laughs> okay. It's for you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, it's starting to pour. Yeah. And it's very loud it's... in this um, cavernous space Tin that we, can that we re- hang out in. record in. Um, so thank you everyone for listening and hopefully James writes their chapter swiftly mm. and we have another episode up soon. Yeah. In the meantime, keep well everybody. Bye everybody.